You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning, everybody. So good to be here with you today. We're welcoming everybody watching at home right now online or perhaps later on down the road. So here's where this series came from. When I was a kid growing up, we would sing the song all the time. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Maybe you know the song? When I got married, my wife and I had kids. We would sing the song every night to our kids. I'll never forget the day that one of my sons said, Dad, can we sing a different song tonight? We would literally sing it every night as we would lay our kids to bed. For me, this song has a very special place. I gave my life to Jesus in, at around 12 and a half or so, a little over 12 years old. I was baptized in December. I remember it very profoundly. And I remember it because it was shortly thereafter that that I started to question whether or not I made the right decision. And the reason I was questioning whether I made the right decision is around 13 years old, your, your brain begins to develop. You start to pass from concrete thinking to abstract thinking. You start to understand the world is bigger than you. And I started to ask this question, how can I know that there really is a God and that I don't just believe because my parents told me there's a God? You know, we went to church every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday night, because when I was growing up, that's how you did it. So if there was a time the church doors were open, we were there. My dad had served in our church, was an elder in our church. He taught Sunday school class in our church. So we were there literally all the time. How do I know that what I'm saying, I believe, is actually the right thing? So I went on this little journey with God, somewhere between, say, 13 and 16 or 13 and 17 years old. And I just kind of said, okay, God, I, I don't know that you're real. So I'm going to keep playing the game. I'm going to keep showing up when I have to show up. But in the meantime, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I'm not going to live according to your ways. What happened for me over the next few years was life got harder and more lonely, and I didn't know where to go. Now, you could analyze my story, and if you're visiting with us and you're not sure about God, and I get it, there's a lot of things. What I could tell you with absolute certainty is over the next few years since I began that conversation with God, God consistently and faithfully revealed to me who he was. See, the hangup for me was, how can I know that there's a God and that he loves me? I get that the Bible tells me so, but how can I actually trust this book? How can I actually know that this book has a message that I should believe beyond just the fact that my parents told me that this is a trustworthy book? What God did over the next few years and over the last few decades is he began to reveal to me thing after thing after thing, moment after moment after moment, and I would say data point after data point that says this book is not only trustworthy, it is literally the words of God. Now, throughout this series, we're going to take a little bit more of that as we go. We'll just explain some more. It won't be everything there is to say on the subject. And a four or five week series, there's no way we can say everything on a subject that people write books and books and books and books and books about. But I want to give you a few anchors for your soul and for your faith. What we want to begin with today is one message where we clarify what does it mean when we say that God loves us? What does it mean when we say that we need a savior? And we're gonna do that through one chapter in the Bible. Imagine that, just one chapter. And I will probably go five to 10 minutes over my allotted time slot because that one chapter is full of so much meaning and richness. I wanna encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bible, Luke chapter 15. Now, if you're using the Bible we provide, that's the New Living Translation. This is the New International Version. It is what it is. If I had about $5,000 that we didn't need to spend on something else, maybe I'd buy all new Bibles for everybody. In the meantime, you've got one translation and I have another. Now, some of you sitting out there have heard, you can't trust the Bible. 
That's why there's all these translations out there because everybody's making it say what they want. And that is absolutely not true. And throughout this series, I hope to show you that a little bit, but one little nugget just to hang on to as we open up these versions of the Bible is what happens is we all have the same Greek and Hebrew text, but culture is constantly changing. Did you know today the word don't is actually in the English dictionary because of Homer Simpson? Now, if you were to look back 40 years ago, that word would not be in our dictionary. We inserted a word because culture uses the word. So we've got all these translators trying to take the original Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic texts and figure out what word, what idea correlates the meaning of those things today. And you end up with different translations. For one, just being honest, it's a good moneymaker. But for two, people are really authentically trying to give you what they say it says. So we're gonna open up. I'll be in the New International Version. You can read whatever version you want on your app if you have one. Everything will be here on the screen or up there on the big screen. If you're watching at home, it'll be right about here. Okay, so here we go. I think that's correct. Maybe I'm wrong. All right, Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Stop for a second here. Let's just unpack what we've heard. Jesus often ate with tax collectors. I've said this many times. They were a despised group of sinners in Jesus' day. The Jews were under Roman captivity and the tax collectors were Jewish people who worked for Rome. So they charged the tax of Rome, but then they were allowed to add on their own fees associated. So they were specifically despised because they usually were ripping the people off. The taxes were a tremendous burden. And because they were one of them, they were seen as like betrayers of everybody and other notorious sinners. So we don't know exactly who fits in that category, but they're famous enough that everybody knows those are the wrong people. Don't hang out with them. But Jesus does. He hangs out with notorious sinners. And not only hangs out with them, he eats with them. Now, the Pharisees are a specific group of religious people in Jesus' day. There's various kinds. There's Sadducees, Pharisees. We go through them all, Essenes. We don't have time. But Pharisees were the religious elite. They were the ones who studied the law of the Old Testament and did everything they could to morally align their lives with what was written. And now, because the Jews are in Roman captivity, they have a hard problem. How do we obey the laws of God when we're in a culture that absolutely doesn't care about the laws of God? And they came to the conclusion, one way to keep yourself holy, holy doesn't necessarily mean pure uh, morally. Holy is all the ways that God is different than us, but the Pharisees love to apply it to just the moral purity laws. So one of the ways to keep yourself holy, different, set apart, is to not eat with people who don't obey the laws, especially those pork eaters. Because I don't know if you know this or not, not but in the Jewish law, the Old Testament law, what you eat, you couldn't eat shelled things, so no crab. You couldn't eat pork. It was an unclean animal. And some of you are like, this is why I would not have made a good Jew. Well, Jesus loved to eat with people who didn't obey all the laws. And the Pharisees believed you were better for not doing it because then there was no way you would accidentally stumble into sin. And then we see verse three, and you gotta notice this. It's the key for the whole chapter. Then Jesus told them this parable. How many parables does he tell them? One. But if you know Luke 15, he actually tells three stories. And the reason is, and it's taken me decades, and I hope that encourages you because here I am, I'm 44, I'll be 45, just a couple months. I know, I don't know why I say that out loud. I'm 29 and I'll be 45 in a couple months. My family might argue I'm 13, I'm gonna be 45 in a couple months. Anyway, moving on. The point here is I'm learning. I'm still growing. Maybe you are too. I used to think, Jesus said he told them this parable that, that then the next story was the parable. 
All three stories go together. All three stories make a point, but yet all three stories make bigger points along the way. And you can only understand the parable if you study all three stories. Story number one, verse four. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? (laughs) When he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I was gonna show it, but I decided not to. But I don't know if you saw this video going around on like social media. It's about the sheep that get stuck in a crack. And the shepherd comes along, some of you are laughing because you've seen it. And the shepherd comes along, grabs a sheep by the leg and he kind of has to wiggle it free and he wiggles it free and he yanks it up and he, the sheep puts it on the ground and the sheep takes off running and jumps and falls right back into the crack. Have you seen this video? If not, you need to Google it later. It's hilarious. Now, what you don't see is the shepherd goes back over and grabs the sheep again, I'm sure, and wiggles it free and pulls it out. Everybody I've seen shared is like, my walk with God, exactly. Now, what's powerful about this story and something I couldn't understand for a long time, a guy named Philip Yancey, he wrote and he said, this is terrible math. If I offered you $99,000 or $1,000, which one are you going to take? See, if I say, if I give you $99 or $1, which one are you going to take? If I offer you 99 cents or one cent, see, you start to go, eh, it's a dollar, whatever. There's a spiritual point. But if I make the number big enough, you start to go, wow, that's really big. But that's kind of the point. See, in God's economy, something's going on here, and I don't believe that something will become completely clear until we get to the third story. I used to believe the reason God left the 99 to go after the one is because the 99 could encourage each other right? There's strength in numbers. So he would leave the church together and go find the lost person and bring them home. Yay, shepherd. I don't think that's what's going on here. I'll come back to that. I need you to hang on to it. In the meantime, what we see is when the shepherd finds a sheep, what's he do? He rejoices. It's awesome. I found what was lost. It's mine again. And then that's not the only person who celebrates. Look at the next verse. Verse eight, I tell you, In the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Story two. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. Sound familiar? Two stories, back to back. Lost sheep found party. Lost coin found party. Few little notes. First of all, I want to give credit where credit is due. Many, many, many authors, pastors, scholars have informed my thinking on these texts. Two in particular lately, a guy named Timothy Keller and a guy named Kenneth Bailey. And I don't know where these different pieces of information cross them. I'm not quoting them in particular. So I just want to give them credit where credit is due. Nevertheless, as we look at this, the average home back then would have been about the size of a single car garage. If they were wealthy, perhaps a two-car garage. If they had animals and were wealthy, depending on the part they lived in, it could have been a two-story house, single-car or double-car garage, not much bigger than that. If you're thinking of an oversized, your super nice, insulated, air-conditioned garage, not like that at all. But this just gives you an idea of what we're talking about, size-wise. So imagine a single-car garage. There's no roof up top. It's a single female. She doesn't have any male listed in her life, and that's important because the first thing that it tells us is God is not just like a man. God himself doesn't have a gender. 
In Revelation, we see the throne of heaven and he is a band of light. When Paul describes him, he says, God sits in unapproachable light. When we read these, what's called apocryphal texts throughout the Bible, whether it's uh, in Ezekiel or wherever, anytime there's angels near the presence of God, I believe these are seraphim, if I'm saying this right, we see them covering their eyes and staring down and away from God because the glory, the majesty, and the holiness of God is so otherly that no one can stand in his presence. Do not picture a male named God the Father. However, God identifies as God the Father, but if you go, and this is just a little Bible nugget for your time today, go back into the book of Genesis, and when God makes Eve, he says she will be a helper unto him. And the word for helper there is the same word used to describe the Holy Spirit throughout the Old and New Testament. Because God is not just a father, He's not just a strong tower where you can run into him. He's not just a cloud by day and a fire by night. He's not just a shield who goes before you. All of those are Old Testament metaphors. He's also tender and loving like a woman or a mother. Are you with me? And that's important because it's easy to put God into a box and say, well, God is like it. Jesus is like, you don't fully know what God is like, but Jesus does, and he's made him known to us. And so this woman, she's lost her coin. Why is that important? Well, in that society, as somebody who wouldn't have had a lot of resources and no male mentioned in the story, the coin would have had extreme value to her, extreme value, perhaps need. Now, this is important. I don't want to spend a lot of time here, but one of the things that sets apart the God of the Bible, apart from all of the other religions, right now, my wife and I are watching a show called Manifest. Any Manifest fans in here? Okay, a few of you, woo, yeah. I like Manifest because I like those kind of shows or like a lost kind of show where like there's this thing going on, you don't know what it is and it's mystery and they try to tie it into spiritual things and they always lose me there and it frustrates me because they always try to tie like all the world religions together and say, well, it's like this and 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 I want to say, you didn't read your Bible. The God of the Bible, for those of you who don't know, the God of the Bible stands apart from every God out there. Why? Well, one reason we are told that God created everything that there is because he loves us. That's it. So when you look upon the stars in the sky, they're literally there just to show off his glory, his majesty, and his power. They're just for fun. Why? Because he's awesome. In fact, the psalmist say, the heavens declare the glory of God. That's why they're there. They help us keep times and days and months and years. God created work for us. Why? Because he's a good God. See, Islamic... Um, Scholars will tell you that Allah created because somebody had to work on his earth. That's not why God created us. God didn't create us to be worker bees on his earth. God created work for us because he knew it would bring meaning and value out of life. Well, actually, in August, talk about what went wrong and how to fix that in this world, but he's just a good God. He just loves to give of himself. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying about this woman in the coin to say, well, God needs you. He's just broken and incomplete without you. That's not it. God is complete and fulfilled in the love that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has and gives away freely to us, but he loves you so much that he drops everything to go looking until he finds you. And when he does, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. And in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's probably a good time to talk about the word repent. In the Old Testament, it's the word teshuva. The Hebrew there is shub or shuv. And the reason you don't know is because you tell me which one I'm saying, shuv. You can't tell. So we're not exactly sure how to pronounce it. Again, it's just a pronunciation issue into our language. And when you're saying this word shub or shuv, it literally means to turn. And the idea of the biblical word repent is at one point I was walking in a right relationship with God. We were face to face. And I turned away from him 
towards something else that appealed to me and was more attractive to me than him. And in Jeremiah, I think it's in chapter three, I think it's in verse 22, God says, if you will return to me, I will heal you of your turning. And the word there is used three times. You turned away from me, and when you did turn away from me, you experienced a lot of pain and heartache and loneliness and suffering. You didn't have to experience that. If you will simply return to me, I will heal you of your turning. I want a relationship with you. I want to renew you. I want to restore you. And this fits into what Peter says later when he says, when we repent, times of refreshing come. And the whole idea here is when it dawns on us that we are far from God and we turn to him, what we don't get is an angry father who can't wait to discipline. Instead, what we get is a loving father who can't wait to open his arms and draw us near. And in case you're not sure, Jesus continued. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. When do you get your estate? When a person dies. There's no other way to get it. In that culture, the oldest son would have gotten what's called a double portion. So in this story that Jesus tells, there's two brothers. So the first brother would have gotten two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger brother, this brother, would have gotten one-third of the inheritance. But he still doesn't get it till the old man goes. When he is either on his deathbed or is totally lost or has absolutely died, he can hand the responsibility off. Then the older brother, his responsibility is to manage everybody. He takes the place of the father. He loves everybody. He cares for everybody. <clears throat> he basically takes that role and position of authority. We see this when Jesus is hanging on the cross in his final moments, and he looks down at the disciple whom he loved called John, who wrote the book of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, probably Revelation. And he looks down at John and he says, today this is your mother and mother, today this is your son. Jesus is handing off on the cross the responsibility to care for Mary and the family to John, the disciple. So cool how things play together, huh? So in this story, Jesus is saying the younger son comes to the father and basically says, I don't love you, I don't care about you, I don't want a relationship with you, give me what belongs to me when you die. It would be equal to him asking for his father's death. But greater than that for the dad, in order for him to meet the need, he would have to go sell the land. And if you know anything about Middle Eastern culture, have you ever noticed when you open the news and there's all these wars going on between the Jews and the Arabs today, what are they fighting over? Land. Why? It's the inheritance that points to the promise given to Abraham. And everybody's making a claim on who was the child of promise, Ishmael or Isaac. And that's not today's story. But in order for this son to demand land is the same as the father embarrassing himself publicly for everybody. He would have to go into the marketplace, go to one of the neighbors and say, I'm selling off the lower 40. And then why in the world would you do that? Well, because my son has demanded it. And everybody else would look at him and say, what are you, nuts? Smack him in the face and tell him to get out of the house. You don't do that. But the, one of the things we learn in this story, the way Jesus tells it, is that's not the way the father treats us. You find this throughout the scriptures. God will give you what you want. But what if what you get doesn't lead you where you thought it would? This is Romans chapter one. 
It says, so God handed them over to the desires of their flesh. But by the time we get to Romans 3, he says, be careful that you don't judge them because all of you, whether it's gossip or slander or idolatry or adultery, you're no better. At whatever point you broke the laws of God, you've broken all of them, and we all, Romans 3, 23, are in desperate need of a savior. Verse 13, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had. He set off for a distant country and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Oh, there's so much to say here. If only I had another hour. Let me hit a few points. Number one, we don't know what the son did. Later in the story, we'll see it, the older brother accuses the son of going and spending his resources in a very specific way, but we're actually not told that's what he did. What we do know is he went and lived wildly, wastefully is probably the best way to interpret that. You ever watched and read the news? When, uh, wow, that was really loud smacking. Sorry about that. You ever watch Read the News? When a person goes into athletics, could be Major League Baseball or basketball or football or hockey or whatever, um, soccer, golf. Okay, I said sports. Uh, whatever. <laughs> Just kidding. I like golf too. Whatever sport it is. And when they're young and untrained, have you ever noticed how they quickly lose their money? And they have to learn a hard lesson about who they hang out with and who they socialize with. That's exactly what's happening here. This young man goes out now with a ton of resources and he's young and he's immature and he's chasing after something other than a relationship with his father. And when he does, he finds that there's nothing there. And you ever notice when you read those stories, the friends didn't care about them? They were more than willing to waste their money and spend their money and ask for more money. Every year as the NFL is about this time of the year, they do these trainings for these young guys and they have these long-term NFL players saying, I mean, you gotta watch who you're hanging out with because they're going to just eat you up, take your stuff. They don't care about you. They just want their sugar daddy. And this young man goes out and he's alive for the party and everybody loves him and then he's got nothing left and he ends up desperate. And it tells us he became so desperate, he went and hired himself out to a pig farmer. Remember, we started with the Pharisees judging Jesus for eating with people who ate things like pork. Are you kidding me? Jesus inserted in one little line this profound statement about just how far this man had fallen to the point where when he's working with the very pigs, you ever notice employers don't like to pay you before you work? I don't know if you've seen that or not. So the employer is gonna pay him until he's done the work, but he's hungry now. And he's working and he's looking at the slop, the pods, the pigs are eating and he's thinking, oh, if I could just have some of that. And the reason Jesus puts that in there is you would see spiritually, emotionally, physically how far he's fallen. But it's easy to judge the man and to miss it in our own story. 17, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. <laughs> I will set out, go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. It finally dawns on him. I blew it. I had my chance and I blew it. 
And now what? I can either spend my day working with pigs, never able to make anything of it, desperately wanting just to eat their slop, or, or I can go back to dad and say, I blew it. If you'll just give me the chance, I'll spend the rest of my life paying you back. Do you hear it? If you'll just make me like one of your hired servants. The son doesn't have the skill set for that. I'm gonna need you to train me. I'm gonna need you to spend some money to pay me to do this. But if you give me the chance, I'll pay you back every dime. How is he gonna do that? As a hired servant in daddy's house, how in the world it would take lifetimes to pay back the debt? He literally can never earn enough money. Not to count, how do you put a price tag on the pride? Nobody's ever selling that land back. It's gone. What's done is done. It's a debt that cannot be paid. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. This isn't the way the story's supposed to go. There's something uh, Kenneth Bailey talks about. He grew up in the Middle East. He was a professor in the Middle East. He's now passed away, unfortunately. But there's actually a ceremony that has existed for thousands of years called the Kazaza ceremony. The Kazaza ceremony was either an opportunity to build a relationship or an opportunity to cut somebody off. What should have happened is when someone saw the son coming, a servant, a family member, a neighbor, somebody should have ran out there and crushed the pot and cut the son off and spared the father the shame of having his son come home. And when the father saw him, the way Jesus tells the story, it's as if he keeps looking. We don't know if this is weeks or months or years later, but it's as if the father's never quite given up hope that maybe, maybe today's the day he'll come home. Maybe, maybe today's the day he'll come home. And when he sees him, see, no respectable Middle Eastern man in that culture would have run. Because in order to run, when you're wearing the long, like, toga kind of outfit, you would have had to pull up the hem of your garment. In fact, multiple people actually write about this in history, that Hebrew men in that day, they would have walked very slowly, very intently, because boys run. Men have their affairs in order. They are in no hurry. They have no stress. But not this father. He's got to beat all the people who want to cut off the son and judge him and condemn him. And instead, he wants to throw his arms around him. And I don't know, I picture it in my head. The dad just picks him up and swings him around and kisses him and says, my son, you're home. What a shocking turn of events. So shocking that it ruins the son. Remember his speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. If you'll just make me like one of your hired servants, I'll pay you back. When the, when the father grabs the son and kisses his face, all of a sudden the son doesn't know what to say. He's lost himself in the father's love. And he says, Father, verse 21, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Sounds just like his rehearsed speech. 
I am no longer worthy to be called your son. It's just like his rehearsed speech. But something's missing this time. He doesn't ask to be made like a servant. Why? Because it's not until this moment that the son realizes there is nothing he could do to pay back the debt. That what the father wanted all along was a restoration of the relationship. And it's in this moment that the son repents. This is the moment that the son realizes, I can't earn it. I don't deserve it. And still you gave yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. So the moment that we repent is the moment that we stop trying to save ourselves by our good deeds. The moment we repent is the moment we stop trying to be good enough by earning our way and we receive the Father's love and it does something to us. It changes us. Sometimes that change is like instantaneous and it's radical and sometimes it's slow. See, I try, I don't always, but I try no longer to do things to receive God's love, but simply because he loves me. Notice this. Verse 22. But the father said to his servants, I I love this, by the way. When the servants see the the father running, they're like, oh, go. (laughs) They know they gotta get out there. Maybe they're trying to beat him to it in order to enact the Kazaza ceremony. But they run. And he looks at these servants now. Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. A few things here. Every single one of these has profound meaning that you could almost spend an entire sermon unpacking. But the ring would have been a signet ring. A signet ring meant the son had the authority of the father. So he wasn't going to be a servant. He wasn't going to be a slave. And he wasn't going to be a second-rate child in the kingdom. He was going to have all the authority and the power of the father still bestowed upon him. The sandals were something that people in the house would wear. It was supposed to be a sign of comfort and care that the father was going to take care of, provide for, and love his son. And the robe? The robe would be a special symbol used only at big feasts and celebrations. It's the idea of clothing, taking off the old, the dirty, and putting on the new. Paul gets right to this point when he actually tells us, I think it's in the book of Galatians, when we are baptized, the reason we don't do a sprinkling here at Kingsway is because when we go into the waters and come up out of the waters, it's an identity changer. We go from lost to found. We go from dirty to clean. Paul actually says it's the putting on of Christ. We're taking the old clothes off. The old has gone. The new has come. See, this is the appropriate response. Like, what do I do now? There's actually some people in the book of Acts Chapter 2, verse 37, they ask this exact same question. They're coming to the conclusion of God's love for them. And it says, they say, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what do we do? do How do we respond? And Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. 
It's your robe. It's your sandals. It's your signet ring. The reason we go down into the waters and come back up, it's not just a ritual. It's not just a rite or a ceremony. It is an identity of new life. The old me, the pig pod eating me is gone. There's a new version of me alive and I am a son and I am a daughter of the father. And the next verse, which I don't have on a slide, says, and this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Who are not yet found. And it's yours today if you want it. But before I invite you to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there's still another brother that's lost. Luke chapter 15, verse 25. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. It's highly likely. This word here can actually have three different interpretations. It can mean servant. It also can mean brother. It also can mean little boy. I kind of like the translation of little boy, but to be honest, we aren't 100% sure. Servant, little boy, both work. We know it's not brother. There's only two brothers. One's in the party and one is outside the party. So we're left with one of the two options. If it's a little boy, I love this because what you have is all the servants are in the party taking care of the dad's business. And the little boys, they weren't going into the party. There wasn't enough room. And so the little boys would stay outside playing in the dirt and dancing to the music and having a good old time. But inside were all the adults, except for the older brother. He heard the music playing and maybe got excited. Ooh, somebody in the neighborhood's throwing a party. So he gets closer and he begins to realize, hey, wait a minute, dad's throwing a party. I wonder why dad would be throwing a party and not tell me about it. Whose inheritance is he spending on the party? The brother's. And as he gets closer, he begins to ask, perhaps one of his little boys or a servant he finds in the field, what's going on in there? Your brother is home and saying, your dad killed the fattened calf. He killed the what? That's my calf. How dare he take what is mine and give it to that brother? When the father hears that the brother is outside and he won't come in to the party, he runs out to meet him. Take a look. Verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. What? I'm not sure how this goes over in our culture, but it definitely doesn't translate to the Middle Eastern culture of the first century. No father goes out there and pleads with the older brother. The father goes out there and says, you get your backside in there right now. Don't you dare embarrass me in front of all our neighbors and friends. You're no better than he is. He might even involve a hand. But see, this father is perhaps not like your father. This father goes out in mercy. This father goes out in love. This father goes out and he tries to build a bridge to his older son. Son, come in. Please come into the party. 29. But he answered his father, 
look, all these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But with this son of yours, parents, you know what this is like, right? That kid, he acts just like you. This brother doesn't want ownership. Oh, no. No, 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 no. He's your son. He's not my brother. And there's the problem. The older brother believes he's good, that he has a right relationship with the father. But remember, story number one, these three stories go together. Story number one, there's a lost sheep. Shepherd goes and finds a sheep, brings it home. What does everybody do? Party. Story two, lost coin. Oh, God's not just like a father who's powerful and strong. He's also tender and nurturing and loving like a mother. And when she finds her coin, what does she do? Party. And who joins her? Everybody. Story three. Story three is about a father who has two lost sons, not one. Lost son, number one, wastes his life doing all kinds of wasteful and moral things. But brother number two believes he doesn't need a relationship with the father. And see, here in America today, I see these two extremes all the time. The crowd that says, God is love. He doesn't care what we do. We do what we want, whatever we want. There's no rules. Or the other side who says, I'm good enough. I don't need a savior. I don't need anybody to help me or fix me. And Jesus stands in the crossroads between these two groups saying, you're both lost. And I want to bring you both into a party. It's my sheep. <laughs> it's my coin. It's my sons. You don't have to stay outside a relationship with me because here's the thing. The younger son figured out that he can't pay it back. The older son hasn't figured it out yet. He believes he's earned it by doing all the right things. All these years, I've slaved for you. And the father says, come in and party with me. What sets the third story apart and what brings it home, remember, in the very first act of the three parables, in one parable, if that makes sense, he separates the one from the 99. And I'm convinced, and you can feel free to disagree with me. I'm convinced the reason these two parallels, he begins with this and he ends with this, is because the 99 were just as lost as the one. And Jesus is trying to make a point. Remember, you Pharisees, you think you're better than the tax collectors and the notorious sinners that I'm eating with. You're no different. You're just as lost. But you don't see it. You think they're lost and you're not. I don't know about you, but I can be guilty sometimes. Look at how it ends. Verse 31. My son, the father said, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. <laughs> but we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost. 
and is found. No more story. I just read that this TV show that my wife and I have gotten into called Manifest, that uh, it was canceled. There will be no season four. And so I'm not there yet. Do not ruin it for me. But season three ends and nobody knows how the movie's gonna end. Drives me nuts. But Jesus just did it. How does it end? Will the brother ever come in? Will he receive his younger brother? Will he and the father be restored? Will he finally understand that what this was all about all along was a relationship with the father? That's what he longed for? And essentially, Jesus leaves it open with no conclusion. We go right into the next part because he's leaving it open for you to choose today. Will you have a relationship with the Father? Will you walk with him? Or will you stay outside watching God throw a party for everybody else and wonder why not me? Let's come back to Acts chapter two, verse 38, if you guys could put that up. I don't know where you are today or where you are at home. But if today, right now, the Spirit is revealing to you that God loves you and he wants a relationship with you, the right response is to say, I need a savior. I can't save myself. I can't fix myself. Or perhaps you're on the other end of that spectrum. I have wasted my life. I have hurt the Father. And today is the day I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. We're gonna sing. And if that's you, we wanna invite you to come down. We've got some people down here. They're called our Connect Team. They're wearing lanyards. Just say, I'm ready. I don't even know what it means, but I'm ready. Listen, if you're at home right now, you can always text the word CONNECT to 317-565-4911. We'll be in touch. Can I just pray over us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We thank you for your never-ending, reckless love. Lord, I pray right now for every man, woman, and child in this room who has never received Jesus as their Lord and Savior. They've never re realized their desperate need for a Savior. God, I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit, would you do what my words can't? Would you open their eyes, open their heart? May they choose to let today be the day. May they choose today to be the day they go all in with you. Whether they're sitting at home, this could be a month from now. They listen to this message, God. May today be the day. May they respond. May you bless them with a new identity, with a ring, with a robe, with sandals, and with a party. So God, I pray for every Christian in this room who's already given you their heart and their life. God, may you stir in us. Help us to not be like this older brother, God. Help us to be older brothers and older sisters who run after and pursue our younger brothers who are lost and say, come home, come home. The Father loves you. God, embolden us. We thank you for this news that is still good. In Jesus' name, all God's people said.